Chan for having me. Also, thank you to the former uh, organizer of the group, Svetlina. I'm not sure if she's here with us today, but um, I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, it's always been a bit of a, an ambition and a dream, I think, for every international lawyer to be invited to give a presentation uh, at the Oxford uh, discussion group. Uh, I must confess that I didn't expect to be in uh, my slippers when I was giving <laughs> this presentation. So that's uh, quite an interesting uh, and quite different take on my original idea of what this would be like. But I'm very excited to be here um, from the comfort of my own home office <laughs> uh, to speak to all of you about my um, PhD but more specifically a section that deals with uh, the use of obituaries to understand a bit more about the Invisible College of the International Lawyers um, and of the international legal profession in general. So I'm gonna try to share my PowerPoint. I'm not really going to be using it uh, very much, but I have a couple of pictures, which I think will be interesting for us to look at together. So, brilliant. Um, so, first of all, starting with the title, I think um, what I want to persuade all of you today is that even though it is clickbait, it is much more than clickbait um, to be looking at obituaries um, in, of international lawyers. I think that there are a lot of interesting insights to be gained from this exercise. And what I hope to do with you today, rather than go into too much detail about the findings of my research um, on this issue, um, we'll actually be talking more broadly about method. So different methods through which uh, I looked at these obituaries and why I've done so. Um, and also many debates that surround um, or the underlying thread of this presentation uh, will be on the politics of method in international legal research more broadly. And why I believe that we should take um, a very that kind of debate very seriously. Uh, so the idea of politics of method is going to be underlying the whole presentation. So um, kind of leaning into um, the teachings of especially Black feminist authors like Bell Hooks or Audre Lorde, I'm going to be, um, and there are a lot of white men in this presentation, so just, just to start, I think I'll, I'll, I'll use some, some intersectional feminism. Um, Using stories is one of the best ways of getting people to engage with theory. Um, and this is what I'm gonna try to do with you today as well, which is I'm going to tell you the story of how I came about to using obituaries and the ways in which I have used them uh, to shed light on the functioning and composition of the Invisible College of International Lawyers, not only to pull you into the discussion, um, but also as part of a deliberate move uh, to A, disclose my positionality, which I think is key um, in research in general and definitely in my research in particular. And also um, this, this move towards personalism and 
uh, anti-scientism that kind of underlines also a bit of this exercise of unveiling the people behind the law, which is what my research tries to do. So as my presentation has revealed uh, at the beginning, I didn't study international law initially in the UK. So my first degree was from Brazil, which is where I'm from. Um, and I wa was always very much um, a public international law theme. So at the very beginning, I was doing the Jessup. Um, I tried to do model United Nations and all of these things. And a lot of things studying from international law from the global south were relatively clear to me in the sense that the disparities of power between countries, for example, uh, and how some state practice counted more than others was always part of how international law was taught to us and how I understood it. Um, however, some things from the global south or from the semi-periphery were invisible to me about the functioning and the making of international law. One of them being, what are the actors that practice international law beyond diplomats, beyond the people acting for states, right? So um, in 2013, I um, attended the Hague Academy course, um, where I had the pleasure of being taught in the general course by James Crawford. Um, and one of the things that struck me was um, how he would come in to give the lectures straight across the, the garden from where he was pleading on behalf of Australia in the whaling in the Antarctic case. So um, this person was talking to us about his practice at the International Law Commission, about his practice as counsel before the International Court of Justice whilst practicing at the International Court of Justice during the, during the course. Um, he was also in the audience, there were members of the court that would come to watch the lectures. Um, he would engage in um, banter with uh, some of his opposing counsel, like uh, Professor Alain Pelet, who was um, acting for Japan at the time. Um, so it was, and also he offered to sign our copies of Brownlee's principles, which we all had, that he edited, uh, and Ian Brownlee was his former PhD supervisor when uh, they were both at Oxford. So that struck me as very interesting for many reasons. First of all, it was my first kind of peering into what does international law practice lo look like beyond the roles of diplomats and what states do. Um, and also the absence of that window uh, into this kind of personal social aspect of international law through textbooks, especially if we're looking at um, sources of international law literature, the emphasis is very much on states, obviously, and of course with good reason, but there is very little if any attention given to individuals, individual members of the profession in the making of international law and in the practicing of international law in mainstream literature. So that was at the back of my mind um, when I started my PhD and I decided that I wanted to look into the role of 
individual international lawyers in the making of international law more generally. Um, and so I started to think a little bit about how I was going to do that. So how I was going to procure this information that wasn't perhaps easily found in uh, international decisions themselves, because obviously uh, the majority of courts won't otherwise, other than through dissents and separate opinions, have um, judges' names on the decision, right? So that's part of the anecdotes that people tell, but it's not really part of the mainstream discourse. How, how was I going to attain uh, knowledge or be able to peer into these, these relationships and the role that individuals might have in the making of international law, what their careers, career paths looked like, etc. So the first thing that I thought about was looking at uh, rosters of international institutions. And this is what many people um, that do very interesting work on the international legal profession, like uh, Desilet, Yves Desilet and Brian Garth in, in commercial um, arbitration, uh, Sarah Desilet works on um, international judges, specifically the International Criminal Court. Um, Daniel Ben, for example, works with um, building networks of arbitrators and looking at rosters. And that was a very interesting way of going about it, but I felt like a little bit of what I wanted to look at, which was the role that the double hatting or the dédoublement fonctionnel that um, Oscar Schachter mentions in his article in the Invisible College of International Lawyers was missing from looking at individual rosters. So I needed something that would give me a little bit more insight into career paths. Another thing that would be missing if I was looking at rosters would be this um, the mentorship, friendship, and social element of that is part of the profession. So this idea that I mentioned that um, people are often in opposing sides of the same case at the International Court of Justice, uh, that often chairs move around um, the, the, the Chichli chair in the in the Huel chair would move around in often in relationships of mentorship. So if you think about Arnold McNair and then Hirsch Lauterpacht that was obvious to me that there was some relevance to this and this would be missing if I was looking at individual rosters of courts. So there's, there are a lot of constraints that come with taking an institutional approach. Um, and then there was another option, which was to look at individual stories undertaking, for example, um, interviews that would allow me to look at anecdotes, um, about uh, the international legal profession and a little, little bit more of this human element. However, a problem that that posed other than obviously the logistical issue and the training issue of undertaking such a large um, socio-legal style project such as this would be that um, a lot of the people I wanted to talk about were no longer with us, right? Uh, hence, obituaries. Um, the idea kind of came to me because I've always really enjoyed reading them. So it's one of those really kind of weird obsessions that I had was to read 
obituaries published in specifically in the uh, British Yearbook of International Law, which was the source that I used, but also um, when uh, Ian Brownlee passed away, there was a series of obituaries and homages published to him um, when, I, when I was an undergraduate. And I remember reading that in different international law blogs and I was really fascinated by the, the, this human element that was always there. Um, and obituaries come with a set of uh, limitations, of course, because um, they specifically if, if by employing the British yearbook obituaries, which were the obituaries that I used, you have um, restrictions in terms of nationality, etc., and biases that will happen if, if you look at this type of source. Um, but I felt that complementing that with other studies, like the ones that I mentioned on rosters, I would be able to paint a really interesting picture that unveiled some other aspects that wouldn't be available if I was looking at other types of um, sources. So um, they allowed me a great of um, amount of time. So from the 1920s to the present, in the case of the British yearbook, they allowed me to look at um, the lives and the works of international lawyers, both dead um, and alive. So the people that wrote the obituaries and that are still part of this network today, uh, they revealed association beyond a single institution or a series of international institutions. And they also um, gave an insight into the relationships um, personal relationships that I mentioned before. Sometimes people mention that obituaries are a particularly um, exaggerated form of that might overstate the role that some individuals had in um, the making of international law. And, and they have, and I've, I've thought myself about the criticism that may, may emerge from that. But one of the things that struck me as I was undertaking this research was that actually there was a great degree of candor that came out uh, in these types of contributions as well. So there was a lot of exaggeration, I'm sure, and adulation and the sense because of the very nature of the type of contribution. But there was also um, a lot of candor. So I can give you two examples right now. The first. The, the, the man in the wig uh, is Lord Fillimore, who you may know from the drafting of the PCIJ statute. Um, his obituary from 1929, both stated that he had a successful but not brilliant career at the bar, uh, alluding to the role of his father uh, as an eminent member of the Admiralty Court as allowing for him to enter the profession through this particular way. And his obituary also says that his career, his early career was supported by competence rather than by genius, which I think is quite an interesting turn of phrase. Another example of candor uh, is uh, the man on the right of the screen, George Schwarzenberger, uh, whose obituary was published in 1992. Uh, and he's referred to as lacking tact to avoid treading on toes and the skill to apply balm to the wounds he caused. 
So I think that there is a lot of um, adulation, but also a lot of candor and a lot of interesting tidbits that give you insight into more about the international legal profession than one would perhaps expect. So I began reading all of these obituaries and gathering information about them, about these people. Um, and I soon realized, uh, my original idea was that part of this exercise would result in a family tree of sorts, where I could kind of indicate uh, where people worked and when, but then who they were succeeded by, who their lines of mentorship were, etc. But over time, I realized that um, the relationships were much more complex than I initially anticipated. Uh, and that in itself it gives you a lot of food for thought, but certainly it makes it a lot more difficult to translate uh, these relationships into very you know, simple, binary, this person was the mentor to that person kind of approaches um, that required a little bit of refinement. And I anticipated um, that I would need help with this. Um, I used uh, one of my personal connections in this case, which is my co-author from the piece in the Leiden Journal that was linked um, in the invite to this event, which is Nicolo Ridi, who works on network analysis. His specific work, he's at the University of Liverpool, and his work specifically dealt with patterns of citations in different international courts and tribunal, in tribunals, jurisprudence, and um, speaking to him, I realized that that might be a very interesting way to gather the data that I'd found of relationships between people and their career paths using that same type of social no network analysis technology um, to make a point about the invisible college. So I'm going to try to open um, another page. We'll see how well we do with this. Because part of Nicholas genius is that he managed to create an interactive version of the network as well. So it's not just static and it allows you to explore a lot of different aspects of um, different relationships and people's career paths over time. So I'm going to try to share this screen with you. Um, let's see if that works. If you can see here in particular, um, I'll show you the full network first. Return to full network. So you can see here the number of participants in the network. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can learn from just the broad vis visualization itself, and you can read about that in the paper. But one of the things that you can do very easily is zoom in to specific people and see what type and the strength of relationships that they had with other people. So basically, what Nicola and I did together was um, brainstorm on the best way of displaying all this type of data, both about the individual nodes, so the individual people that are here, 
but also their the connections and the strength of connections between actors. So here, for example, you have uh, Lord McNair, who was um, Huel Chair of International Law at Cambridge. He was also a judge at the International Court of Justice and at the European Court of Human Rights. And you can see him connected here to Sir, Sir Hersch Lauterpacht, um, but also, for example, Max Huber here, you can see all of these people were mentioned in his obituary and in other obituaries as connected to him. Uh, and you can see here the difference in strengths of connections between people. So the relationship between him and Max Huber was, according to, of course, the information that is in the obituaries, relatively inchoate. So it's a quite a thin line you can see between both of them. Whereas his relationship with Lauderpacht was quite strong in comparison. You can see the, the thickness of the line here that represents a higher number of ways in which these two people were said to have connected. So uh, lines of succession in different in educational and international institutions, uh, mentorships, friendships, etc. So the first point that we get to then is um, the role of empirical methods, right? in investigating the profession and employing the empirical lens to look at the same the same set of information, which are the obituaries and the type of things that we can learn from employing such a method. So uh, I think some of the conclusions that Nicole and I um, got to from employing such social network analysis um, are highlighted in the paper and I've already alluded to some of them here. Uh, the first one being the complexity of the relationships in question that kind of defy or don't quite come through by near, near narration of these relationships. Um, also, the fact that the relationships are relationships of mentorship, friendship, enmities, uh, successions, and even family ties in some cases. Um, they help illustrate narration and stories beyond anecdotes. Um, and in doing that, they allow us to unveil aspects of the profession that perhaps wouldn't be clear otherwise. Uh, they also do something which I believe is very important, which is bolstering critiques for more diversity in the higher echelons of the profession. Of course, as I said before, um, there is very little, uh, there, there is a lot to be said about the British nature of these relationships, but we do see that there are other nationalities represented in the British yearbook obituaries, uh, and there are particularly relationships between, um, with members of the American and European Academy and a group of practice of international lawyers. We have zero African members of this network, zero Latin American, and one Asian person who was memorialized in um, the British yearbook. Also issues surrounding the representation of gender over time, only two obituaries of women were published in the British yearbook of over 70 that were published since the 1920s. 
one of them being of Joyce Guttridge, who was the first woman legal advisor at the Foreign Office, and the other one, uh, Gillian White, who was the first woman elected professor in mainland Britain, um, who was a professor at Manchester. Uh, other women do appear as connections uh, in the obituaries as well. And you can read a, li a little bit more about that in, in our paper. So this is kind of the empirical lens uh, over obituaries, but they're also, uh, I also use them in other ways. And one of them I call doctrinal implications of um, these obituaries. Of course, the term doctrinal in itself is difficult to define. Um, I use it as a internal legal perspective aspect. And in what way have I used obituaries um, from a doctrinal, through a doctrinal lens? Um, mainly to directly contradict the sources narrative that sees states as the main actors in international lawmaking, or that deliberately, in fact, exclude individuals in the form of teachings of publicists, for example, from mainstream lawmaking narratives. And you can see uh, several examples of anecdotes in which people have been said to have contributed to the development of specific legal provisions or legal doctrines. Um, you have here, uh, Sir Ian Sinclair that worked at the Foreign Office and whose obituary is said, uh, in his obituary is said to have um, contributed to the acceptance of the commercial exception to state immunity cases. And on the right here, we have uh, Sir Clarence Wilfred Jenks, who was Director General of the International Labor Organization and whose obituary mentions his role in contributing to the internal law of the ILO in particular, but of international organizations law in general. Uh, so this is kind of the, they're, they're kind of the doctrinal implications or the directly legal implications uh, that can be, that come through in obituaries that wouldn't otherwise perhaps be present. Um, in other sources such as judgments, like I mentioned, where the role of individual judges is often obfuscated by the collective nature of the work. It's the same case with, for example, the International Law Commission, where although you have a special rapporteur um, for each project, there might be variance into the extent to which certain people have contributed over time to a particular project and to individual um, provisions in, for example, the Articles on State Responsibility, um, and obituaries give a, li a little bit more insight into that and help illuminate that. The third and final lens through which I have looked at obituaries and have used obituaries to fuel my research on the role of individual members of the profession in the making of international law is a critical lens. And when I say critical, again, I use that in quotation marks because what is critical research in a critical method uh, in international law in particular um, is 
open to a lot of debate. But what I do believe that obituaries do is they allow international lawyers to um, open their minds to the role of individuals in particular. So a, a big strand of critical literature such as uh, David Kennedy's and Marty Koskiniemi's is to uh, open room for international lawyers as agents to be responsible for their own roles in uh, the development, the making and the practicing of international law. Uh, and I believe that obituaries are ripe with stories uh, of individual contributions, of stories of successes and failures that individuals have had in championing certain projects, also the development of certain sensibilities and our understanding of these sensibilities. Um, so bolstering critiques that um, call for more diversity in the profession, more transparency in how we address the role of individuals in the making and the practicing of international law, their responsibilities and the ethics of international lawyers. But I do believe that they also help us do that with a tone that is enlivening and opens room for imagination. So Isabel Rowley specifically has written about um, policing, policing critique and the types of critique that are open to us uh, in international law and the dangers and pitfalls of taking an exclusively negative, perhaps, view of the discipline. And what I believe that obituaries do is awaken us to the sensibilities that there is a lot of despair to be had, but there is also a lot of room for imagination of the profession, um, imagination of new futures for the discipline, empowerment and holding individuals responsible for their actions in this milieu. Um, and also they allow one to employ perhaps a more subversive tone um, when talking about the lives of international lawyers. So this personal tone breaks through this idea of international law as only something that is made in the abstract by states and it allows us to connect with it uh, from a more personal perspective. So my conclusions at last. Um, I've mentioned that I looked through different lenses at one same object, which are obituaries of international lawyers. Uh, the three lenses that I looked at them through are the empirical one and what I call doctrinal or more strictly legal one and a critical one. And I believe that all of these different lenses and looking at obituaries in particular give us many insights into the profession. Um, the empirical lens allows us to map out um, the social network whereby ideas can move within international law and the relationships, the complexity of relationships that exist between members of the profession. Uh, it also allows us to have a better bird's eye view of the career paths that international lawyers take uh, over time beyond a single institution. 
and they also allow us to really see the lack of diversity in the international legal profession in general and bolster critiques for um, increasing uh, the role and the participation of certain groups in the high echelons of the profession. From a doctrinal perspective, uh, individual instances in which people have contributed to the development of the law um, and how they have done so allows us to critique, understand, um, and, and, and better understand the role of individuals in the making of international law, which is largely absent from the literature on sources of international law and on international law making in general. And from a critical lens, looking at obituaries allows us to think about the responsibility and the role of international members, uh, international lawyers, individual members of the profession. It allows us ourselves to increase the transparency about how these uh, individuals work and the way in which this group is organized. Um, it also allows us to connect with personal aspects of the profession, not just the negative sides, but also the positive sides. Um, in a way that is enlivening um, and allows for room for reimagination of the profession. Uh, and also helps us switch a little bit of this narrative that international law is and should be impersonal. It allows us to connect with the personal nature of the discipline. Underlining this exercise, as I mentioned before, there are issues, uh, there are questions of method um, that, that have come to me many times as I was uh, undertaking this project. Uh, the first one is something that Young Clabbers talks about in his uh, 2018 uh, speech at the European Society of International Law uh, conference, which was a need to move away from methodological fragmentation. So, Focusing um, on the politics of method, as I did on this presentation, showing that looking at the same object uh, through different lenses can yield complementary but different results, allowing for a fuller picture of something, um, an object of study, be that obituaries or any other object of study in international law, allows us to transcend uh, and discover more about our own objects of study in practice. Um, I also hope to have, through the narration of this long, extraneous process of research, have uh, raised, raised um, some questions about the academic effort as a process rather than just something that is an outcome, which is often what you get when looking at only the finished product of someone's research. Um, and also the idea behind this presentation is to talk a little bit more about the fact that often we benefit from molding our um, method on the basis of our research question and not the other way around. So open openness and cross-pollination between different methodological lenses can actually be 
um, an extremely worthy exercise. So I hope that uh, you enjoyed my presentation. I have concluded it. Uh, and if you have any questions, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Louisa. That's really um, a creative and informative presentation.